Okay. Hey, welcome to another episode of Happy Hour Live with Brian Rosen, where we are neither live nor an hour, but that is our shtick. Um, today, 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 today on the podcast, Chad Bronstein. Hello, Philo. Um, full disclosure, I am an investor in Hello, Philo, but Chad came to us through a business group that I'm in, and I thought it was particularly interesting because in the adult beverage space, compliance is one of the most important things. And in any fed, federally regulated space, compliance is a very important thing. And, and Chad works on that aspect of federally regulated uh, goods and so much more. So I'm going to welcome you, Chad, to the jam, to the showgram, if you will. Um, tell us about what you do. I think that's important to know because you'll do much more justice than I will. Well, first off, Brian, thanks for having me. And also thanks for believing in Philo. Um, but yeah, so, you know, Philo is, uh, we like to think of ourselves as like a sales force for highly regulated industries. And so when we first, you know, we jumped into cannabis about two years ago, um, originally with the synopsis that we can build something unique with data, we started to realize that if we're going to do that, we really had to focus on compliance, which you just mentioned. And so Philo works across the whole ecosystem where we work with law firms and MSOs around hyper-local law. Um, we work with the MSOs uh, and they use us for advertising. Um, we also um, have a big data business. And to your point about beverage and liquor, um, there's so many correlations between Brian Rosen, the tequila drinker, and Brian Rosen, the pot smoker. I'm both. Right? Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm both. So, the, so you know what? So like for us, like Fibo took a really unique approach to, you know, very stigmatized industry at the time. I feel like it's getting more destigmatized de today, but to really go in and say, you know what, you need to know Brian on paper is a successful entrepreneur, but you would never know Brian on paper. Um, it actually smokes weed, eats edibles, does CBD, et cetera. And so that was kind of our original hypothesis that brands would want to know more about Brian in that mindset versus Brian just in the standard day-to-day -day mindset. You know, what's interesting, and I want to get into a more kind of layman description of, of Philo, but What's interesting is that the, the two businesses that you focus on, two of the businesses you focus on, booze and weed, are historically generational, right? Weed, not so much, but, but booze for sure. You've got antiquated leadership, meaning generational leadership. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of thing. Yeah. And so you're coming in and you're saying, hey, here's a solution that I know you guys are working and, it's, and you don't need us, but you're not as efficient. You're probably leaving money on the table. And you're sure as shit not making yourselves ready for 2022 and beyond uh, if you don't kind of up your game. So is it a purposeful target on the back of generational businesses? Because weed, on the other hand, is highly regulated, but it's, all, it's a brand new, excuse the pun, seed business. Yeah. So how, so how, how do you play in both of those spaces, really? I mean, it's, it's pretty, you know, I come from the space... Uh, Brian, before I started Feel, I was working with all the same brands that you work with in the liquor space, right? Yeah. And uh -huh. at the end of the day, brands always want to understand something new about Brian and how can they get Brian to come. The goal is always to get Brian to drink Casamigos or drink whatever they're trying to push, right? And so we always knew that whether it's generational or new, um, the generational companies need to understand new behaviors of yeah. their customers, 100%, right? 100%. And so how we approach it is, you know, you know, a lot of times, Brian, you're probably 
you know, with our good friend Mitch smoking a pre-roll, but also <laughs> you guys are probably having tea on the rocks in your hands, That's right? And so, like Mitch. yeah, so the idea is, so the idea is that you got to be able to, you know, you got to be able to find that version of Brian because there's, there could be doing the same behaviors, but also with coronavirus, what's really interesting, I can't name brands here, but we, we work with quite a bit of them is that you had dry January that happened. You had, you, and you're, you know, you're one of the most well-respected guys in beverage and liquor. Think about no events, no events to really 100%, target 100%. customers. Lollapalooza, Coachella, every sporting event gone. So how yeah. do you reach Brian Rosen, the guy that goes to Coachella? You don't, you don't know how to, but you probably know Brian from the data that we have from the canvas sector. You can start to really, you know, target that consumer that's still the same behavioral traits of the guy that goes to Coachella or Lollapalooza or goes to a sporting event. We give that really helped us out because now we gave them a way to talk to their consumers still in a different approach because you got no live events to really reach people from a promotional perspective. So everything you're doing right now is online. You know, it's funny. Um, when I started BevStrat, one of the words I used all the time was last mile logistics, right? Who is who's taking the beverage from uh, the distributor to the account, right? If the rep isn't doing it, that works for the distributor, who's doing it? Well, BevStrat was, and we built a whole business on that. And this is not so dissimilar. Who is, who is giving the, you know, oftentimes distributors, importers, suppliers, and supplier is a ubiquitous word that can work across platforms, don't have the data once it leaves their warehouse, right? They don't have a way to reach to your point, right? They don't have a way to reach the consumer once it, it gets sold to the nearly end user, right? So once it goes from the cultivation farm to greenhouse, you know, that data is lost perhaps. Or once it goes from a distributor to a liquor store, who's the buyer, right? So are you sharing that Hello Philo will provide that bridge data? And what's it? Right. It's, it's, it's Philo. We only say hello. We do hello Philo because we couldn't get the domain Philo. I said Philo. No, you said hello Philo. Philo. It's the same thing. But I, no, anyways, yeah, I think your, to your point is like, if Brian goes to grassroots, and, you know, or goes to dispens call dispensaries and he's spending 200 bucks on weed and, you know, you're buying a Sam's liquor or some or back or a, a store, there's a good shot that um, you're probably going to maybe go pick up your weed, also go to, a local liquor store in the original days and buy both, right? Um, right. Now everything is online. So uh, you're gonna, now maybe instead of going to the local liquor store because of coronavirus, you're, got, you're ordering on Drizzly and Drizzly is going to the local liquor, liquor store. So the same thing goes in cannabis is you're ordering, a lot of the stuff's happening, online orders, you go pick it up, et cetera. But uh, the idea is that you're reaching people in the transactional mindset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that data, but, what, what so who who buys the data if you can say or what type of company buys the data and then what do they use it for? So a lot of the the brands behind you in your shelf, we have a lot of unique mainstream brands now buying canvas data. And again, it's to be able to understand a consumer. What I can say is that we did a we did a Forrester study, and Forrester is one of the largest market survey data companies in the world. And we surveyed 161 brands and we had the ability to really Prove to the mainstream market that this consumer insights was extremely important to all brands, right? And that allowed us to kind of make this destigmatize, like you said, very old companies that are conservative yeah. to get them uh, comfortable with this new industry. And so 
to your point is that we work with a lot of those brands, both from a QSR to a retail, to a beverage and liquor, to a pharma, because all of them still want to be able to understand more about Brian in this mindset versus the mindset they've been targeting Brian in for the past 20 years. This is the first time you can actually learn something new about a consumer um, from a consumer insights perspective, what they're used to from the past. There's always been an antiquated way to target Brian. You, you know, it's funny there, this really is cutting edge shit because there was a time when um, I'll use apparel as an example. I was, when I was at Price Waterhouse, I worked on an apparel company in LA called um, Phallus Paradis. And it was the equivalent of a Marshall's or a Target, what have you. Um, and they would refer to their customers by this generic name. So women under 30 were known as Missy. That was the brand. What is Missy buying? And the men were, men over 30 are the man client, women over 30, the woman client. Um, the boy under, under 30 was Billy. Like there was these ubiquitous names interchangeable that described a base, but not a person. And if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying, hey, the base is great but let's go, let's drill down right to the individual user's data. That way, everything from marketing to inventory to uh, on-time uh, sales and on-time inventory, real-time, you can control all that with all this data. Is that right? Yeah, in a sense, exactly. Like you said, there's a base, base Brian. Let's call it base Brian. Sure. Base Brian. Let's is, call him Base Brian. Let's yeah, do that. Let's call him Base. Let's call him Basic Brian. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> but, uh, I've been there. Um, but uh, no, but yeah. So yeah, you're you're really just trying to like all brands want to do is understand every frame of mind that their consumers in, and you hit the nail on the head. Like when you when a brand provides like a proposal to a, a vendor called Google, they're gonna yep. say what you just said the Missy under thirty and the the other consumer, and then they want to yeah Missy and say, okay tell me more about this consumer. Tell me other ways I can make sure that I keep that person in my buying funnel. And so yeah. that's exactly what you know we've been able to do is we have transactional data around um, Brian um, doing different things. And then we can correlate it to more of a robust audience around Brian's, all Brian's habits to make sure that we are really connecting with Brian in every frame of mind. Do you feel as though, um, A, do you, what do you feel about um, the timing of fully federally regulated cannabis sales. Um, and obviously it's just an opinion. And B, do you have any opinion on the, like for Illinois, for instance, that, you know, there's still a strong black market of cannabis because tax rates are high on the, at the retail front, which is almost diminutive to what they're designed to do. Although they're still making hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue, it could be three times that if they lowered by four points, you know, uh, tax yeah. points. So any feeling about A, timing of federally regulated and B, is it going to be federally regulated with this exorbitant tax angle? Like federally regulated, I can give you an opinion, but like call yeah, it two to, five, two to five years, right? That's, that's my take. Um, right. Uh, it's always going to have a local component to it of a, you know, local governments are going to be able to say yay or nay, in my opinion, to how they want to approach it. Uh, and that's, you know, partially what Philo is, is a hyper-local platform from the compliance side. But, uh, and then on the tax side, I, I would say that it, considering where we're at as a, um, with coronavirus and a lot of uh, cities, in my opinion, struggling, I would do what you just said, lower the points if, uh, 
and allow for more sales because that's how the government, some of these, why do you think New York and New Jersey just chose to go uh, allow uh, creating their own uh, medical and rec market in rec markets because they need that money because of what happened to them in uh, coronavirus. And so coronavirus for cannabis really made cannabis, in my opinion, uh, kind of bulletproof vertical because in the, in the worst market ever, it was deemed an essential. So you can go buy weed. And so essential that's how the body, yeah. what? Essential in my house. Exactly. So that's how the governments, um, I think the governments are going to, we'll see more and more governments coming on, allowing rec markets to become illegal because they need it. So you had said that New York has just approved rec and medical. I didn't. Well, no, they're, they're Jersey, Jersey is New York. There's a lot of rumors, as you see with New York, that it's going to become a rec and medical market. If any of the listeners, and there's, I don't know, as last count, about 32,000 of you, um, New York in the summer, besides being incredibly humid, and uh, it has this putrid smell of urine and weed um, down every street. Because um, although it's not legal, it is actively used and smoked um, throughout the day. So I think legalization is just a it's just a way to tax what's already happening. And they should, and they should, it's not, I mean, there's, you know, you're involved in another company with Sana, psilocybin, and that too, if I'm not mistaken, has been legalized in one state. Yeah, it's been decriminalized in uh, Portland. So what is, so for the uninitiated, uh, i.e. Brian, uh, I call him shrooms. Um, I just heard uh, a podcast yesterday about how Michael, uh, Mike Tyson microdoses all the time after you had mentioned to me earlier in a pre-call about the boxing federation. Uh, Mike Tyson has used psilocybin to reset his brain, to get over um, any, any um, cognitive disorder that is caused from repetitive head punching. Um, although if you're pace, facing Tyson, you're more likely to be punched. So talk a little bit of, if you can, because you're, you're really multifaceted about Wasana, about shrooms and about, um, you know, uh, you know, NHL, NHL great, uh, Daniel Carcillo. Yeah. So, um, so one Daniel Carbomb was his nickname in the NHL and he had, he was a fighter and he got eight concussions and we met through Figo actually he reached out to me, Brian, you got, you got, you actually in this office, met him. Yeah. Um, and uh, he had the same things that Mike has. Does he play hockey? Mike, he plays hockey. He plays hockey. <laughs> um, he, uh, he was 22. Um, he was in 162 fights. So um, that's a lot. Right. And so his whole prop, he had the same thing Mike suffered from obviously, which is, um, TBI, traumatic brain injury. And uh, what cured, well, you know, what I wouldn't say cured, what he's currently healed him and he's currently on that journey um, is psilocybin. And so funny, I mean, not funny enough, ironic enough, Mike's actually a strategic advisor of uh, Wisana. So, Mike Tyson? Uh, yes. Oh, that is, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we, he's been working with us on the advisor side um, and his team, Azim and his wife. What our mission and we saw is, and what Daniel's mission always was, was to help people that suffer with the same problems that he has. It's not just professional athletes, it's women with domestic violence, uh, it's ex-military, anyone that suffered from traumatic brain injury. It could be all the way down to youth that uh, suffer from concussions, right? Um, but it's a, it's an interesting market, and it's you know you see the I think like the criminalization and the in the market in general, 
psilocybin will be different than cannabis. There won't be a place where like you're going in all the time and to dispensaries and buying um, mushrooms. I think, you know, where, where we saw is focused on is becoming a prescribed drug. So mm-hmm. going through the FDA and becoming a treatment for people that suffer from the same things that Daniel suffered from, which is TBI related concussions, light sensitivity, migraines, et cetera, that make it insufferable um, to actually continue life, which his problem was. Um, and so that's, that's what we saw focus focused on. And uh, we work with professional athletes and we work, you know, a lot of different kinds of groups to help them. And, Dan, and Dan, Daniel's mission to really heal as many people as he can. You have to share with Carcillo, and I, I think he's there, um, is that um, he should not feel bad that I had no idea that he played hockey because I did a call uh, a couple of weeks ago with a two-time Super Bowl champion, uh, an offensive lineman for the New England Patriots. And I too asked the guy, uh, did you play sports? You know, and that guy as a two-time Super Bowl champion, uh, equivalent to two-time Stanley Cup champion, um, he didn't take too kindly to that as well. So my knowledge of sports is uh, well known. Well, by the way, I didn't know who Daniel was. I, I'm not a hockey fan. So when he came, when he reached out to me, I had no idea as well who the hell he was when he first reached out to me until he told me. Yeah, but I seem to make that faux pas all the time. Like every, yeah. unless, unless you're, you know, seven feet tall, I have no idea if you played a sport or not. Is your company, do you think that the next trend in really retail or data or cloud-based information or how, how does it grow, right? Because it, 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 is big business going to know everything about everybody right down to the time you go to the bathroom? Is that what you feel the future would be? I think it's already, I think that's kind of, you know, I think, you know, you probably get targeted all the time with shit. And I would say that's the, it's kind of there already in general, like you can get targeted pretty close. I think for us, we took a different approach. Like we, you know, data is a huge part of it, but compliance is a key part of our business. And I believe like, and back to what we were talking about, like, I think in, when we did our research and we started calling CPG companies and beverage, not let's take, this isn't the data, this is compliance. There's still no automation around like looking at your packaging and labeling behind you to say, okay, is this FDA compliant? Is this following regulatory guidelines? You can do it manually, use a law firm, use a group, but there hasn't been a way where you can automate that process to make it a much more fast and efficient approach. Mm-hmm. And so we, part of what we do is law firms license us and MSOs license us for hyper-local regulatory law. So understanding all the way down to the jurisdiction of you're in Winneka, what's happening from taxation, zoning, um, ordinance, legislation, anything that's happening in that government, our platform picks it up and, uh, and it allows uh, companies to stay at top of the trends in an automated way. But also we built image recognition and we're moving into other things than just cannabis, Brian. We're going to be moving into other verticals like renewable energy or autonomous vehicles, ride sharing, anything where it's highly fragmented from a local market. Um, we would like to play in the automation legal space of compliance. And that's a big focus of ours going into this year. And that's what I was going to ask you is that, you know, we, I, since I'm a beverage guy, that's my lens, right? And what other industries from a compliance standpoint are, have all these tiers of red tape that make your company really needed and a cost-effective labor replacer? Yeah. I mean, again, like we said, a lot of, as we know, and I call it some pretty big brands, a lot of the shit they do is manual. So yeah. they're, they're having these whole, you know, large teams. 
we allow a law firm or a brand to really cut down on resources in a sense and use an aggregate. We, we have natural language processing. You know, it's very hard to do what we've done with all the jurisdictions that are in the United States um, to have that coverage. Right now we're focused on cannabis, but we're not just crawling local governments for cannabis. We get all the data that's happening in our local government. And so we're creating frameworks to really automate for beverage and liquor. If you're, um, if you're Uber or Drizzly and you're now your whole thing's around regulatory compliance, a FIBA would make a lot of sense for your back end of your compliance side of your business because we can automate that for them, make it a lot more efficient um, and give uh, legal teams or compliance teams kind of a real-time view of what's happening in those local markets. Mm -hmm. And what is in your, what do you think would be, what's the end goal for FILA, right? What is, is it going to be, we talk about Unicorn, we talk about, um, we've had a couple other, you know, uh, on the podcast a few weeks ago, we had some some billion dollar um, IPO fellas here. Uh, we had um, the woman on the podcast that uh, that took uh, Tinder, or I'm sorry, Bumble public. So, so what does the future look like? Do you feel? I feel like for Philo, you know, you never want to jinx yourself, but I feel like you know, it comes down to you and I talked about this when you were out, when you were reaching out to invest in Philo. And you asked me some of the questions about, I always tell you this, but you, you were probably one of the most thoughtful people in terms of the questions you ask when you're investing in companies. And it was more sincere and like on a personal approach than it is like your typical funds. And uh, sure. I would say what makes Philo special is the people. And so what we've been able to do is really, there's people and there's tech. And I believe that our tech is great, um, but we want to have the tech we have without the people and the vision and the product and the sale, all these different aspects. But I was lucky enough when I started FIBA to really have a lot of support of C-level execs, co-founders, board, et cetera, that decided they believed in the vision and believed in, you know, what I wanted to do and wanted to come on that journey. And because of that, we fast-tracked growth. And we just, you know, and I'm, it's like when you're a sports franchise, I always say, we had Sean McVay come speak to um, FIBA. We talked, you know, it's just like having all these coaches on your team, on whether you're a football team or you're a business. And I, I feel like we've brought on the right people across the whole function of the business that's allowed us to grow. So I think we're a unicorn in terms of the people that we have and the abilities that they bring. And that to me gives me confidence that we could become a billion dollar exit. You know, and that and that's 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 really important to me and culture is important to me. And I believe we have a great culture and we've went through a lot of shit um, through coronavirus and everything else. And we came through strong. So I believe, you know, Hopefully we are one of those. You can't, I don't jinx myself, but I think we're on a nice trajectory to become very successful. You know, it's funny. Um, I am by, I'm an investor, professional investor. I'm also a people person. I like to think my wife would differ. Um, I'm a I think you are. Well, thank you, Chad. I'm a people person before until uh, about 9 PM and then I go to bed, but um, people that invest in people, you can always teach a skill. You can't teach a passion. Right. And that's not some like bullshit wooden sign you find like in Lake Geneva. That's like, a, you know, like, like bless this kitchen kind of thing that, yeah. you know, the, the reality is that um, we hire people, you hire people, we work with people, you work with people um, that are passionate about what they do, no matter what they do. And it makes the skill part a lot easier. Um, I have invested in a felt with a fella, um, a company in Bermuda called Trout Trading. And it's um, in Bermuda for tax shielding purposes, 
but this fellow only hires ex-college athletes on the trading desk. And he yep. only hi- and he only hires ex, and I know you played college soccer, right? No. What did not? Anyways, go ahead. Either way. Just for now you did. And the <laughs> and um he only hired he only hires ex-athletes because there's a drive in there and there is a passion in there that um, you can't teach, right? A competitive nature that is just, that is, just is. Yeah. So, so Chad, would you say that your world is filled with um, those folks? Do you surround yourself with those folks? And what would be your advice to any entrepreneur who listens to us in forming a team? You've got, I mean, your team is huge. Uh- incredibly photogenic and all over the country. So what do you look for when you hire people on your team? So I look for, you know, people that have drive, like you just said, that are motivated, that are humble. Key word is humble. Like we're all confident. Everyone has an ego, but um, in terms of humbleness and, you know, I always like to say, I will, you know, whatever I need to do, like clean the toilets, whatever I'll do, I'll do just to make us successful. And I want the same people you know, I'm a, you're, when you're a player coach, you want to, you'll go out in the field and do the same thing a player will do the same thing in business. Like if you're a CEO, you don't want to be an ivory tower CEO. If you're a C-level, you don't want to be an ivory tower C-level. You got to know what's going on in the business. And so, you know, I've been blessed, lucky enough, like Aristotle, who Brian, you've met multiple yeah. times. Like I invested in a sunglass company. He was a one man show. He was coming grinding every single day, nagging me. And so when I started fuel, I was like, I need that kid's energy with me on the side of me to co-found this thing because I know he, I remember when we first, we were in a WeWork space by ourselves and he was carrying boxes over to our new office, you know, Eric Shani, who uh, is my other co-founder. I know Eric, we, yeah. we met in an acquisition um, seven years ago or eight years ago and we became friends and we, we hustled together to build our last company. And when I started this, I'm like, I need this guy to run my tech. I know he's, he's going to do, you know, then Nicole Cosby, we met, um, negotiating legal for my last company. She was running Publicis. And I'm like, she's going to be the legal rigor we need. And then I, then Conrad, who was our head of marketing at Amobi, I knew he was a great storyteller. So I was like, hey, come be our CMO because I work with them. Right. Um, and then, you know, Jeff Ragavan, who sold his company to Salesforce for 800 million, most, one of the most humble good entrepreneurs. Good exit. Yeah, great exit. Humble, humble guy um, who I want to get you on our podcast that he hosts. But uh, we were on a founders panel together and he's like, and we were both talking about our comp- other companies. Like, I like what you're doing. And then he's our chief commercial officer now. Um, and, uh, you know, Katie Ford, who just yep. left to be, had it was had a gold brand for Twitter. We worked together. She was my client at Coca-Cola. Um, and, you know, we, so back in the day, I, I mean, the more of the stories, I knew each one of them were hustlers and then goes to like the board, like, and it's a long-winded answer, but Mitch, Jason, Clive, um, Roxanne, we just had Craig, Lauren, um, and um, I don't know if I'm leaving out anyone, but there's a lot of good people that, uh, and Christy Hafner. Um, there's a lot of amazing people that make us stronger. And then you as an advisor, and Ron and, and Steve, and all these advisors, like I, when I took started a few, I was like, the more good talent we have, the easier it is for us to become more successful faster. And so, yeah. 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 And I think, look, I mean, the takeaway from that long answer, frankly, <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it's, we got a lot of people. I don't no, want to leave anyone out. No, I'm just, yeah. I, you, you know, I'm playing. The, the, the takeaway, you know, from that, I, I would say is that always take notice of who's on the other side of the table. You know, my, my accountants are people that 
I've have done due diligence on me when I sold my second company. They're my accountants now. My legal is the people that worked against me on a deal I did 10 years ago. So, you know, these people, people, a lot of times entrepreneurs come into these fundraising or um, negotiations with, oh, fuck the other guy. I'm going to just crush him. I'm going to do this and do that. And the reality is they're hired to work against you because they're very good at what they do. So your best move as an entrepreneur is hire the people that give you the hardest time. Frankly, I see it. I mean, hire the people that put you through the ringer because you know when you need someone to put someone else through the ringer, they are available to you. I would agree with that. I also think as an entrepreneur, you correct me if I'm wrong, but like a lot of entrepreneurs think they want to do like have, you know, own 90% of their company and do it themselves. And I feel like for me, like, I feel like the more talent you're all, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to be an entrepreneur for the longevity time. So like, you know, just, I think for what's made Bilo successful is purely is people and networking. Right. And like you said, diligence is you're raising capital. The more talented people you have around you, the easier it is to raise capital because a lot of diligence happens with people. And so, you know, I agree with what you're saying. You want to have the best people that you negotiate against um, or through deals on your side. Yeah. Um, and if you, I think an asshole on negotiate, we bought Canaregs. David Freeman um, was brought in to negotiate for Canaregs and we became buddies through negotiation. And now David's on a board observer and he's a good friend of mine. And so agree with what you just said is that if you, if people aren't assholes and you can do a good deal together, then you want them on your side. Yeah. And a lot of times entrepreneurs think of it as like, I'm going to bludgeon this guy. And the reality is, is that it's a very small network of people that give money and people that need money. And that, and, and entrepreneurship in general is, it's a very big buzzword, you know, it's a catchword, but you, entrepreneur is really um, just a fancy word for don't like sleep, uh, incessant stress, al always on the verge of broke um, until you're not, right? And so people think of entrepreneur as sexy or as a job title. Entrepreneur, it just means you're choosing to, to kill it on your own as opposed to killing it for someone else. You know, hundred percent. Like, but I think entrepreneur is not easy and it's not, there's no, no. shortcuts and it's not sexy. Um, it's not sexy. It's you grind. It's in, and when you grind, when it gets successful, it's not just, it's not about money for entrepreneurs. We were just talked about it, Brian, but it's about having fun with people around you, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, and creating your own culture that hopefully is great. I think one thing that uh, lastly, when we bought two companies, like when we did it and negotiated with those companies, we don't bludgeon entrepreneurs, other entrepreneurs, like you mentioned, we keep it very direct with them and we don't insult them. We don't go for the juggler to try to negotiate. We have a very direct conversation, but I hate other entrepreneurs. They, people make mistakes. We make mistakes. The idea is that you're, when we buy companies now, all of the executives stayed with us. And because we wanted good executives that are going to help us get to the finish line. And so, um, you know, we, we were lucky enough to find two companies that's still with us today and they add to our culture. But it's, I think that's, you know, that's important is when you buy companies for us, at least we're not here to like bludgeon a person. So when they come under our team, they don't ever want to work with us again. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, my dad, um, I'll leave you with a little anecdote from my father. I had dinner with him last night and my father is a legendary retailer and entrepreneur. And now he's in his mid eighties and um, kind of in the, in the swan song of his career and his life. But um, I remember I sat down with my dad when I was 21 years old and I uh, had just graduated undergrad at the time. And I, and I said, uh, I want to be a trader. 
I said, because I was going to East Bank Club as a Chicagoan and I would see all the freighters there at 3.30 with their Porsches. I'd see them on the sun deck, you know, during the day. Um, I would see them at Sam's come in and buy $1,000 bottles of wine when the market went up and all these, I would see all this. And I, so I thought, hey, that what a great gig, man, I'm in. And I sat down with my dad for lunch at a restaurant called The Golden Ox, which you only know if you're, if you're 45 plus and lived in Lincoln Park. And it was a German restaurant at uh, Clark and Halstead and all the waitresses were Lederhosen. <laughs> not at all. That would never fly in, in today's world. But, but back then it was, I mean, full on, like they all look like St. Pauli girls. And I said to my dad, I want to be a trader. And he said uh, in his way, which was um, neither nurturing nor empathetic, more direct to your point. Um, he said, you're only seeing the winners. You're not seeing the losers. You're not seeing the guys who are working all night, the guys who have two jobs to make to fund their trading budget. You're not seeing the guys that are going home in the, in the Toyota Camry and not the Porsche. You're not seeing those guys. You're only seeing the winners. And, and the reason why the story is relevant, I think, in this conversation is because I look at you, you're a successful entrepreneur, but littered on the road is thousands of unsuccessful entrepreneurs, right? I look at me and I say, I'm an entrepreneur, but littered behind me are thousands of people who didn't quite make it for whatever reason. So people that use the word entrepreneur uh, as an adjective, as a descriptor of who they are, it's really a noun, right? It's a, it's a noun, it's what you are once you're there. But being an entrepreneur, is just grinding and grinding and grinding until you get to the finish line. Whereas you don't see people will look at this podcast or listen to this podcast and say, Oh, Chad's fucking killing it. Um, I'm going to do that. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start three companies, but they don't, they, no one mentions, you know, sleeping on your buddy's couch and no one mentions, you know, uh, the income before the income, the, you know, the, the living on $18,000 yeah. a year or until the you weren't. Or the family, like I wouldn't have been able to do this if my wife didn't tell me yeah, to go. Great point. Leave a leave a very good job um, that I was doing very well at to go start a company. Like that was a risk. Philo's still growing, but we were in a good spot. But it was a risk. It was it was when it was zero, you know. Yeah. And so you have to. I think you could agree with this, but a foundation behind you is very important um, for an entrepreneur because w when you go be an entrepreneur, it's very risky and nerve wracking. And there's a lot of uh, sleepless nights because you're, you're just thinking, how am I get to the next the next aspect of my business? Hundred percent. I think that's a great way to close. Do do you? Um, how can people reach you? How can people learn more about your company? Any of your companies? Um, how do they? I'll link up in the. I'll link it up in the header. But give a quick shout yeah, out to your link, URL. Yeah. Yeah. Link LinkedIn or chat at uh, chat at hellofilo.com. I know that's confusing, um, but hellofilo.com and. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's what I'll leave it with. But Brian, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, investing in us, being a strategic advisor to us, um, and it's been it's been a lot of fun getting to know you as well for the past yeah. couple months. Thanks for being on the show, Graham, and um, very much appreciate it. Yeah, talk to you later.